this new act does is it can say, look, we consider that investment acceptable for national security in 2020, but let's say it's 2025, there's a new technology, the technical assessment has changed, we have powers to now go back and say to the investor, we need certain new things put in place. We're concerned about 5G at the moment, didn't exist 10 years ago. In 10 years time, what else are we going to have to be dealing with that doesn't exist at present? And the real question about national security risks and critical infrastructure, even critical technologies as well, is we know what is critical at one end of the spectrum, and we know what's not critical at the other boring commercial commodity end of the spectrum. But where along that spectrum do you draw the line and say everything on this side is critical, everything on this side is not? Because of the public health shutdowns to respond to COVID-19, there are a very large number of Australian companies whose market value has been almost eliminated overnight. The biggest companies in terms of vulture funds that pick up distressed companies are all hedge funds from the United States. It's a serious problem if you do 85% of your trade with the Indo-Pacific, but only 15% of your investment. Where do we get the capital, the technology and the marketing channels from when our investment partners barely have the capital to be able to invest in their home countries, let alone ours. G'day. Welcome to this special episode of the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by policyforum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Those comments you've just heard were made by Dr. Jeff Wilson, and you can hear more from him discussing the new rules around foreign investment and national security in Australia right after this short break. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. On Friday the 5th of June, just three days prior to the recording of this discussion, the Australian government announced reforms to the way the Foreign Investment Review Board, otherwise known as the FERB, screens foreign investment on the grounds of national security. To discuss how these changes are going to work and why they are happening now, we caught up with Dr Jeff Wilson from our good friends over at the Perth US Asia Centre. Jeff is the research director at the Perth US Asia Centre, where he specialises in the regional economic integration of the Indo-Pacific, with a particular focus on the politics of trade agreements, regional economic institutions, and Australia's economic ties with Asia. Now, before we talk to Jeff, I'd just like to remind everyone that due to the coronavirus pandemic, we are unable to chat to people in the Policy Forum studios as we normally would. We do our best to cut down on outside noise and reverberation. I'm not making it up when I say that I am recording this in my own studio at home made out of cushions and quilts. 
but the sound quality may not be what you are used to when it comes to the National Security Podcast. However, we do what we must to get the job done and to get the important discussions to you, and we will be back in the studio any day now as the university begins to open back up. But for now, let's chat to Jeff. G'day, Jeff. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. Now, we've just seen as of the end of last week that Australia has ushered in some changes to its foreign investment laws based around uh, national security. Can you just give the listeners a bit of context as to what has happened? Well, what we've seen going on in the world recently is a couple of changes around the intersection between security concerns on one hand and foreign investment coming in on the other. One of those is a long-standing story about technology changes, particularly in terms of digital technologies, critical infrastructure, cybersecurity, whereas things that previously weren't a prominent security threat or one at all have now, because of new technological changes, become something that poses security risks and threats that they might not have done in the past or they might not have done in the same way in the past. What we've also seen, on the other hand, is a significant uptick of foreign investment coming not from private businesses, but from various kind of government-linked companies. Um, sometimes these are state-owned enterprises that are wholly owned by governments, but sometimes we've seen some political systems, they're private companies that have close political ties with their host government, maybe through their financing arrangements or political connections in political parties. And there is some concern that these government-linked investors might not behave like a private company, which invests for profit, but might be carrying a political and or security agenda from the governments that they're coming from. So on the one hand, you have these increased technological exposure due to new technologies. And on the other hand, you have a more politicised investment environment where some foreign investors are coming in, taking political baggage with them. And when you put those two things together, it really means we need to 21st century update the kind of regulatory framework we've got to answer those questions about does a particular foreign investment pose a national security threat? And if so, how do we manage that threat? Yeah, so in, in the uh, lead-in to the summary that was released by the Australian government when they announced these changes in rules, they, they listed a, a number of major countries throughout the world that have shifted their, their own foreign investment rules due to, and I quote, a reassessment of profound risk and vulnerabilities. And the time period that they looked at was around about the last two or three years, and Australia's changing now. Has Australia been a little bit late in this reassessment of profound risk and vulnerability? Look, Australia's actually had a world-leading foreign investment review process um, since the 1970s, actually, when the Foreign Acquisitions and Takeovers Act was established and the Foreign Investment Review Board, which is the body of this government statutory body that does the assessment on behalf of the Treasurer, was set up. And we've actually had a national security test in our national interest test for foreign investments for a very long time. The last major refinements happened to it in the late 2000s, around the time of 2008, when the first Chinese investments for state-owned enterprises started arriving in Australia with the mining boom, and the government needed to ask those questions about what, how do we assess if it's a foreign government-owned investor. What we're, Australia's really doing here, so we're not reinventing the wheel, but the, what the Treasurer has announced is a review of how these things happen um, and so how we're going to address these questions that we've already been looking at for a long time. There's probably three big components to what they've done. 
One is a new national security test, which will be administered by the Foreign Investment Review Board and recommended to the Treasurer. And this is a refinement of an existing test we've had for some time. Um, the second is a more expansive look at what is constituted as a security sensitive sector. And again, we've always had a notion of there are sensitive sectors for security reasons and foreign investments have been re rejected in the past because they were, say, too close to remote defence testing sites in the middle of the South Australian desert. This has happened. But they'll be updating how we look at those issues about sensitive security sectors. And it also comes with some more beefed up divestment powers. So in the event that a it's decided that an investment isn't in the national interest after it's happened or something has changed, which meant that it was when it was approved, but over time it's now no longer in uh, the national interest from a security point of view. The Treasurer will have some augmented legal powers to force divestments of those assets. Again, the key point to remember is all three of those components we already had on the books and we have had for over a decade. Um, so what we're really announcing here is that those are going to be reviewed. A new legislation is going to make them far more specific to deal with some of the new technologies that are coming up. Things have changed in the last 10 or 20 years and we need to look at how we do those tests to do them better. But the key point to remember is this isn't new for Australia. We've been doing this for a while. We're just doing it in a more refined manner. So one thing that really grabbed my attention as I was reading through the summary was, as you've just mentioned, the ability for the government to retrospectively apply some of the rules that are going to come up from this national security test. And the first thing that came to mind for me was the land bridge investment in Darwin Port. But am I right to say that these new laws won't be retrospective, so the government won't be able to go back and look at investments that have been made prior to this new law and change them. It's only going to be a forward-looking change, is that correct? Well, we haven't seen legislation yet. It's going to be tabled for review in July, and there's currently a consultation process being run by the Treasury on that for stakeholders to have a say. What we have seen from the, the announcement of what they're intending to do in the draft legislation is that this won't apply retrospectively. Um, so previous investments that have caused some public approbation, um, of which the Landbridge investment, or the lease at Darwin Port is probably the most prominent nationally, won't be covered in that case. But there is an important thing about retrospectiveness here that will matter for these, and it's about the changing nature of an investment. The proposed changes recognise that because of technological changes, assessing security risks for a particular piece of critical infrastructure can't be a one-hit assessment. There might be an investment which gets approved at a certain time, say for a telecommunications exchange or something, you know, the local uh, telephone exchange down the end of your street, an infrastructure company buys that, that's not very critical, fair enough. But in the future, we might have some new, um, uh, some new internet infrastructure associated with 5G or who knows what other technologies are coming up that might then go and use that infrastructure that in the future might make the security assessment around it change. And what this new act does, and this is this is a new thing for Australia's foreign investment review laws, is it can say, look, we considered that investment acceptable for national security in 2020, but let's say it's 2025, there's a new technology, the technical assessment has changed, we have powers to now go back and say, okay, to the investor, we need certain new things put in place. Um, and they could, at the most extreme, include forced divestment orders. The Treasury is very clear that they would prefer to see every other measure other than forced divestment used beforehand because uh, it's far less destructive. But what's interesting here is rather than saying national interest is decided at time of investment and then it is done forever, 
if it for the first time enables us to actually go back and look at past approvals and then say, well, have things changed? That will only apply to approvals that happen after the Act comes through from next year, however. So anything done under the past regime up until 2020 will be at the, on the set and forget basis that we've been operating up until now. So you've you've mentioned technology as one of the drivers, one of the main drivers of um, the change in the way that we assess the impact to na- Australia's national security from foreign investment. But it's also difficult not to note that Australia has decided to make this change after the world has been hit by the coronavirus pandemic. There's been a lot of talk about, shall we call it, bottom feeding or fire sales going around the world of large companies and different infrastructure and sales. There's quite often one country that's been singled out as one of the most likely to be going around the world and hoovering up uh, some of these fire sale bargains, and that's China. So firstly, is the threat of fire sales and other countries coming in to buy up important companies or different infrastructure in Australia part of this change in the law? And how much should we read into this change and think China, China, China? There's kind of two things going on here. One, with regard to the fire sales, this is absolutely a risk. And I mean, anyone who's followed the saga of Virgin Australia's um, basically falling into receivership and issues regarding um, uh, it being auctioned off at the moment, whether the Queensland government would take a stake as an emergency measure, would be familiar with this. Um, Because of the public health shutdowns to respond to COVID-19, there are a very large number of Australian companies whose market value has been almost eliminated overnight. And of course, that's a temporary thing. Australia will reopen and we will become a very a very busy domestic air travel market. The Sydney-Melbourne-Brisbane axis is the busiest domestic air axis anywhere in the world. But at the, in the meantime, these companies are financially distressed. And so they obviously pose a risk of big investors who pick them up for a song and then get a strategic asset. What we saw a few months ago was a change to the foreign investment laws that would require every investment of any value, the um, threshold was set to zero dollars, um, to be assessed. And that was uh, specifically to test for those kind of predatory um, vulture purchases in that circumstance to make sure that, you know, foreign investment would be welcome to keep a company like Virgin afloat, but to make sure that it's priced appropriately and not picked up for two cents. Um, those measures were a temporary set of measures that were expected to last for this year. So that's not a, not going to be a permanent fixture going forwards. And the thing I would point out about that is lots of countries have form for doing this. Chinese investors sometimes do. The biggest companies in terms of vulture funds that pick up distressed companies are all um, vulture-based head funds from, hedge funds from the United States, in fact. So that, that's often that's often a separate set of commercial considerations about flogging stuff off at a fire sale. Yeah, sometimes Australians need to be reminded that, that one of the most recent largest acts of not approving foreign investment in Australia was actually an American company when they did not allow Archer Daniels Midlands to invest in a lot of Australian port infrastructure. We often tend to think China is the number one country that we think about in these issues related to national security, but sometimes it's even our main ally, America. Indeed, actually, before Archer Daniels Midland, the most significant foreign investment non-approval in Australian history was when Peter Costello rejected a bid for BP to buy Woodside Oil in 2001. 
Um, so in there's in fact very few cases of Chinese investments being not approved. And if you look at the history over the last forty years, most of them have been targeted at American companies. Yes. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about the perspective of national security in this. Now, as those who will read the summary uh, the government has put out about these changes, there hasn't actually been the decision made, what are the national security sensitive industries and businesses that that will come under greater scrutiny here? Now, just to note that the classification of national security that's being used comes from the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation Act of 1979, and I quote, it is protection from espionage, sabotage, politically motivated violence, attacks on Australia's defence system, acts of foreign interference, or the protection of Australian territorial and border integrity from serious threats. This is actually a very broad range, uh, and it could cover many different industries and businesses, especially, as you said, when we're moving into an era of high technology that includes communications, but also data collection as well. Is there any fear that the areas that this new law is going to cover will be too broad and may actually stifle some investment into Australia? This is a big challenge and it's in fact what the consultations on this new legislation are talking about at the moment. Um, And it's a long-standing problem that dates back a few years about how we think about what is critical, quote-unquote, infrastructure. Um, I've always described this as being a bit of a how long is a piece of string problem. Um, And I mean, let's use the internet, our internet connectivity as an example for this. Um, it'd be pretty uncontroversial for us to suggest that one of the main internet cables, undersea internet cables coming into Australia, there's here in Western Australia, we're dependent on one from Singapore that comes down to Perth, would be a piece of critical infrastructure. If that gets suspended or cut, we've got a serious problem with national security implications. It'd probably also be reasonable to say that the old telecom, if you remember telecom, copper wire switch at the end of my street down here is probably not critical infrastructure. They're everywhere, the gas plumbing, the water, etc, etc. And then, of course, you've got a whole lot of things in between those two points. And the real question about uh, national security risks and critical infrastructure, even non-infrastructure, critical technologies as well, is we know what is critical at one end of the spectrum, and we know what's not critical at the other boring commercial commodity end of the spectrum. But where between along that spectrum do you draw the line and said everything on this side is critical, everything on this side is not? This has been a perennial challenge. And in fact, the FERB a few years ago in 2015, actually, um, set up something called the Critical Infrastructure Centre, which was a special part of the Australian government designed to try and deal with that question. And when the Foreign Investment Review Board was looking at cases, it would actually have experts who could try and assess that. And they could provide the FERB expert advice on how critical a piece of string was. But there is no right answer to it. You're right that the ASIO Act specifies a set of things that could be considered a security threat. But how you then map that onto here is a an internet telephone switch or here is a piece of gas infrastructure or here is a startup company in Sydney that's designed some code that could be used to compress images for Facebook but could equally be used for steganographic cryptographic attacks, right? If when you look at any particular one, critical does have that old duck problem as if it looks like, a, if quacks like a duck and it looks like a duck, it's probably a duck, but it's hard to say what it is beforehand. And of course, the changing nature of the technology, we're 
concerned about 5G at the moment didn't exist 10 years ago. In 10 years' time, what else are we going to have to be dealing with that doesn't exist at the present? This question is there is no universal answer to this question. It will be a muddling through and relying on informed assessments is how you take those principles from the ASIO Act and actually apply them to any particular investment or piece of kit that presents itself to the FERB. All right. That sounds like a good place for us to take a quick break. So we're going to go and recharge our coffee mugs and then we'll be back in just a tick to hear more from Jeff Wilson on foreign investment in Australia on the National Security Podcast. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. And welcome back to this discussion. We're chatting to Jeffrey Wilson from the Perth US Asia Centre on the National Security Podcast, and we are talking about foreign investment in Australia and its impact on national security. Now, Jeff, you recently wrote a report called Australia's Exposure to Regional Economic Disruption Investment. And in that, you're talking largely about how foreign investment into Australia is going to be impacted by the large global shift that is the coronavirus pandemic. For our listeners, could you break down, because most people when they think about money coming into Australia or coming into any country, they, they usually think about trade, but foreign investment is very different. Could you just break that difference down and let us know how those two different sources of income into the country act differently for the national economy? Yeah, sure. So, most people, when you think about Australia's connection to the global economy, you do think about trade, you think about mineral commodity exports or tourists and, edu- and students coming in. Um, and this does make a significant you know, contribution to the Australian economy for those export-oriented sectors like mining, education, tourism, services, a good part of the Australian agriculture industry as well. About two-thirds of our agricultural output is exported. But there's an entire story about foreign investment that very often gets overlooked. Australia has a just over $3.5 trillion of foreign investment, accumulated foreign investment stocks, money that's come into the country um, and has uh, invested in businesses. Um, And Australian businesses actually have invested $3 trillion, a little bit less, but quite a significant amount of money overseas as well. Um, And these foreign investments do a couple of things. Um, The first thing is that the foreign investment brings in more investment capital. Um, Australians have a relatively low savings rate which is where you generate the money for investment um, in by world standards. And so it lets us get access to a bigger pool of finance for our companies. Um, in fact, if you look at the numbers over the last um, 
decade or so, how much foreign investment net comes in and the amount of private investment in the Australian economy. It's about $1 in six of private investment in Australia is financed by net capital inflows. So uh, if we didn't get foreign investment in, we'd be looking at uh, one-sixth less private sector investment in the country. Simply, there wouldn't be money. You'd need to get the money from somewhere. Um, and so there's that, that aspect, which is the macroeconomic aspect. But there are also other things that foreign investors bring in as well. They often bring in technologies with them. They start a business in Australia. They have technology, um, R&D, um, products that they may have developed for global markets and been able to amortise their R&D costs around a global marketplace that they can then bring in with that investment. And it would be unlikely that Australia has the technological capability to invent absolutely everything we need. So that you often get technology coming in with these investments as well. Um, and the other thing you get is business connections and marketing channels. And this cuts to a connection between our exports and our foreign investment is that very often a foreign investor comes in, they'll buy an Australian business, which is ready to export, but they'll use their ownership connections and marketing channels to market that business's product back in their home country market. Um, so very often, these the foreign investment story is really about a package of three things. The, the capital, the money itself, technology that can come with that, and the business marketing channels and connections to put our products into global marketplaces. Um, and so while everyone's focused on trade, trade good, foreign investment, selling to foreigners bad, the reality is in Australia, and this is true of most countries of the world, it's really not one or the other. And very often your success as an exporter actually depends on getting the foreign investment in in the first place to then set up that financial, technological and marketing relationship to export successfully. So everybody in the world is uh, reeling from the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. How would you see that uh, investment, foreign investment into Australia is going to be impacted? One of the big problems Australia has is we have a very high trade exposure and a very high investment exposure, but they're actually with different markets. Um, about 84% from the year of the last data that's available, 84% of our exports are to Indo-Pacific markets. China about a third, Japan and Korea about a quarter, ASEAN about a quarter and India the rest. So trade exposure, we're completely exposed to the Indo-Pacific. When it comes to investment, however, most of the investment doesn't come from the trade partners, but it comes from the more traditional investment partners, um, the United States, the European Union, and particularly the United Kingdom. Um, so we effectively invest with the Western world and we trade with the Indo-Pacific. Um, and so what we're seeing is those two markets, if we look at the economic impacts of coronavirus that are going to be forecast by the IMF recently, are going to be very much two stories. Um, Asia was hit first because it was the epicentre of the outbreak, um, but it's probably going to rebound faster. And a lot of that's got to do with the fact that Indo-Pacific economies are higher growing, uh, they're industrialising, they're urbanising, they've got very favourable, useful demographics. And so the effect of the coronavirus on them is going to be sharp and short and they're going to go back. Certainly not to the level they were, but uh, of the 6-8% growth we were seeing over the last two decades, but they're going to bounce back pretty quickly. Conversely, if you look at what's happened in countries like the US and UK, two of the most worst affected countries in the world of all countries, let alone of the developed world, the economic impacts of coronavirus there are going to be very dire due to business shutdowns, complete collapse of stock markets and financial markets. That's going to be a long, painful recession that's going to be set off in those. And the challenge for Australia, therefore, is where is the foreign investment going to come from? 
European and US companies facing horribly depressed recession conditions at home. Many of them are now dependent on state bailouts um, to basically stay afloat, are going to have very little capital to invest anywhere around the world, let alone in little Australia down at the bottom of the Indo-Pacific where we find ourselves. And so that's going to mean that foreign investment flows globally, but especially into Australia are going to really seize up, certainly in 2020, and you would expect into 2021, 22 as well. Cognizant of the fact that $1 in six of private investment is financed by foreign investment, that's a big gap. That's a significant amount of private investment in the Australian economy by businesses that is going to be unfinanced without most of that foreign investment inflow, or certainly at the rate we've been used to it. And it's going to exacerbate some of the domestic economic challenges we're already facing with, you know, we've had business closures that are now starting to reopen, um, hits to various trade export sectors with tourism and education. What we're going to be facing down the pike is also this foreign investment challenge. Is that where do we get the capital, the technology and the marketing channels from when our investment partners barely have the capital to be able to invest in their home countries, let alone ours. Is that going to be some kind of stimulation for the Australian government to start investing in areas that help us stop acting like a technology taker in the world and become a technology creator and to start pushing into some of these new world industries where our participation has been a little bit less than some of the other leading countries? Is this going to change the Australian economy and Australian industry at all? Hmm. Look, one way you can solve that, where's the foreign capital inflow going to come from, is that the government can do it. And in fact, if you look at something like the JobKeeper scheme that is being financed by foreign borrowing, that's exactly what's happening. With the private inflows falling, the government goes and establishes this now 60 billion dollar scheme um, and borrows the money on international money markets. So effectively, the government is, the federal government is playing the role of foreign investor. It's borrowing from sovereign wealth funds and then investing it back into businesses through JobKeeper and various other payments. Um, so we've already seen, you know, from a, from a capital account point of view, that's kind of how you get a solution to that problem on a macroeconomic level. But when you cut down to the technology aspect of it, rather than just dollars coming in, that is a, that is a big issue here. Australia has relied on foreign private sector, foreign investment to bring in a lot of technology. And we've certainly seen that, particularly in the resource industry, where a lot of the technologies around automation, um, computer modelling, data analytics, um, actually came into Australia through the massive multi-billion dollar resource investments in iron ore and natural gas during the mining boom, which have then created this huge ecosystem of spin-off companies that say, okay, well, we can automate a mine site. Can we automate a factory, for example? And there's a significant number of businesses in, in Australia that have made a significant run of that spin-off technology. But the problem is that what we require is a big multinational resource company like Impex to build a gas plant in Australia, the Ipsos project, to bring the basic technology in before we can spin it off like that. And with those big capital inflows falling in the next couple of years, you're also going to see that that supply of basic technology falls down with them too. So it's not just a dollar story, it's also an intellectual capital story as well. There certainly would be scope for a, a lot more Indigenous capacity in those areas, Government funding for research has been heavily skewed towards university research 
and there is some scope for that. One thing I would caution on this is that no country is an island and no country can solve all the what be at the world's technological frontier for anything these days. That's true of the United States, it's true of the EU, it's true of China, and it's especially true of little Australia. So it's never going to be a case of Australia being able to invent all the stuff we need within our own borders. Um, but the question of in the really strategic areas, where can we pick areas that are important? Um, and where can we also pick areas that we have a comparative advantage that we're likely to do well in? Things around agricultural technology, we're a world leader in, certainly around mining and energy and resource technologies we are, and also looking at areas that could be spun off to. So the example I gave of if you automation of the mine site, or can that go into a factory context as well? Um, we'd probably want be wanting to make investments in technologies where we're likely to be at the technological frontier, given the nature of our economy, not in some other area that just might be shiny. But if we're not going to be able to compete, where, you know, if you can only pick a few winners, you should pick things that have a good chance of winning, given who you are and what you've got. You were talking about how East Asia got impacted early by the coronavirus and a lot of the countries, especially the uh, large trade partners of Australia, such as China, Japan, South Korea and Taiwan, they've also recovered very quickly and trade will hopefully open up again soon. Now, I'm going to refer to a paper that you wrote for the National Security College's Futures Hub page where we looked out about 15 years into the future and we were looking at some of the different trends and how they may impact Australia's national security. And in that report, you wrote that Asia's role in the global economy will change. It'll become a centre of economic power to rival the United States and Europe. Does that mean that we should also suggest that uh, foreign investment from East Asia will pick up to be comparable to what we see coming into Australia from Europe and the United States? It would be a natural thing. Indeed, if you look at countries around the world as they industrialise and become a large developed country, their economies become more sophisticated. They go from being capital importers to actually having technologies that their companies can then take around the world. We saw this with Japan in the 1980s when Japan's first major global foreign investment push started. In fact, Japan learnt how to invest abroad in, in Australia in the 1970s. Its very first foreign investments were in the Australian mining industry for the 1970s mining boom here. We saw that with Korea in the 1990s, um, with China more recently, um, particularly with the Going Out program and then the Belt and Road Initiative, which where China is investing in an area of its comparative strength, basic infrastructure. This is going to continue onwards. And we, Australia does have a significant economic and strategic liability for not really having close investment ties with Asia. Um, we certainly do have some with Japan and China, but they're nearly entirely concentrated in the large end of the resource sector, big iron ore or coal or gas or copper projects where a Japanese or Chinese buyer wants to get access to secure supply and they buy a 15% stake in a large mine that costs billions of dollars. Unfortunately, those investment flows, they look very big on dollar values. Um, indeed, the biggest single foreign investment ever into Australia was uh Japanese energy company Inpex's acquisition uh, of the Ixus project in Northwest Shelf, but they're very concentrated in a very narrow range of areas. Um, and we're certainly not seeing that across the board level of investment in services, in manufacturing, in agriculture, and many new technologies that we're seeing emerging. So what we really need to do with Asia is build that relationship so we're not 
dangerously exposed to economic shocks coming out of the US or Europe, or indeed what we're seeing coming out of US and Europe, and it's strange to say this now, political shocks, particularly around some of the quite erratic behaviour of the Trump administration. Diversity means resilience, and it's a serious problem if you do 85% of your trade with the Indo-Pacific, but only 15% of your investment. All right, Jeff, that has been a great discussion for this National Security Podcast special issue on foreign investment in Australia and the coming changes of the law to give greater consideration to Australia's national security. So thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Cheers. Thanks for having me, Chris. And a big thanks to Jeff Wilson for chatting with us today on the changes to the way Australia sees foreign investment and national security. If you have any thoughts on what we've discussed today, or if you have any suggestions of issues that we could cover in future episodes, you can hit us up on Twitter using at Apps Policy Forum, or you can speak to me using at NatSecPod. You can join our Facebook group at Policy Forum Pod, or you can drop us an email using podcast at policyforum.net. As always, please hit that subscribe button and drop us a rating on whatever platform you pod with, and we will speak to you on the next episode of the National Security Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.